0: You found the Diggin' Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the show if you're enjoying it on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And also come and join us on Twitter and Facebook. You can find the show by going to at Diggin' Oak Island. Today's podcast, we are going to continue our summer series, and my summer really is focusing as much as I possibly can on getting some interviews and talking through to some other people. I think, boy, during the course of the season, you hear a lot of my voice, and over the last couple of summers, you've heard a lot of my voice too, so I'm really trying to focus in on getting some interviews and getting some different perspectives. Today's show is going to be a little bit less about Oak Island than most of my shows, You see, last year, uh, the History Channel debuted a show called Beyond Oak Island, where they kind of spread, used Marty and Craig and, uh, well, mostly just Marty and Rick, I guess, to talk about some other treasure hunts going on around the world. And the first pilot, the first episode, the pilot, was an episode they did with a gentleman named Christian Roper, who was searching for the treasure of Jean Lafitte in a lake in East Texas. Christian Roper is a fascinating guy who's not only a a filmmaker or a treasure hunter, but also sort of an expedition filmmaker. He's done a few different appearances on shows, and he's really kind of an expert on Jean Lafitte as well, the pirate known probably most famously for his involvement in the Battle of New Orleans in the War of 1812. Now, listen, I understand. I hear what you're going to say. What does this have to do with Oak Island? To be honest with you, this interview that you 're about to hear was well it it came to be because I, I have to admit i 'm something of a Lafitte nerd, but mostly something of a New Orleans nerd. I love the history of that city, I love that city, and uh you know any anybody that has anything to do with the the incredible complex history of new orleans i 'm interested in Jean Lafitte being you know high up on that list. Uh, and I wanted to do this interview last year, and it just never really worked out due to a lot of different circumstances. But so when we started <laughs> planning the summer, I, want, I reached back out to Mr. Roper and uh, got him on the show. Now, like I said, it's going to be a little bit less about Oak Island than it has been, than most of the conversations you're going to hear over the course of the next couple of weeks. But it actually ends up being more about Oak Island than I ever would have anticipated. And not just about his time with Oak Island, but about just, well, well, you'll hear, we'll let the interview speak for itself. (laughs) Okay. So we're going to take a short little break here. And then when we come back, you're going to hear the interview I conducted a couple of weeks ago with expedition filmmaker and treasure hunter, Christian Roper. I really think you're going to like this interview. So have a listen. Uh, Joining me now is, and as soon as I said the words joining me now came out of my mouth, I realized I have no idea how to introduce this person. He is a uh, filmmaker, photographer, a television personality now. I think you're a musician at times as well. Um, You kind of have a resume similar to mine in this regard, (laughs) where it's a a thousand things. You know him from uh, the really the star of the original Beyond Oak Island episode, christian roper how are you thank you for joining us yeah and how and how should i be and uh uh, introducing you i'm seeing now expedition filmmaker
1: that's uh you know i I agree with you there are some of us have too many titles so i i enjoy making things i think that's as simple as you can uh as you can describe me, but I, I love all the all the descriptions.
0: <laughs> now, tell us about, uh, for those of you who don't remember, if you don't recall, if you saw the show, and, and this was the one episode of Beyond, for podcast listeners, this is the one episode of Beyond Oak Island that I spent a lot of time on on the podcast uh, because I was absolutely fascinated by this entire story. Tell us what you're doing and what you're searching for kind of in a, you know, a cliff notes version, if you know what I mean by that, realizing cliff notes is something that's not out there anymore it makes me sound old, but (laughs) give us sort of a, a bullet point version of what you're doing just to remind people of what this is all about.
1: Yeah. So Texas is home to so many treasure legends, you know, take your pick. We've got pirates. We've got, um, you know, original Spanish exploration. We have outlaw's, you know, take your pick of whatever treasure entity and whatever legend you want to search for. Um, but this is one of the most, uh, you know, widely respected legends in Texas, one of the most um, closely followed at times. And it really begins in the 1880s when searches begin in a small oxbow lake of the Sabine River in uh, in the town of Tatum, Texas. And uh, it follows a legend involving the famed pirate, if that's how you want to describe him. There are also many words that could, ref- could uh, describe the Lafitte's, um, but it follows the man Jean Lafitte, who is more famous for his, I-, I guess, involvement in the city of New Orleans, but he was very involved in Texas for a few years. And it it talks about the story of him capturing silver, some some shipment of silver from a Spanish galleon and shipping it north. And the story begins to make sense when you understand that this area, um, exactly where this lake was, was just about the northern border of Texas. And so, according to this legend, there was some sort of ambush set up by the Spanish. And just like a million other stories, that shipment never made it. And so, there have been searches, like I said, going back to the 1880s to recover whatever shipment was going on in Texas at the time. Uh, whether that was here, whether it was other places. In the show, we particularly looked at a location called Hendricks Lake, which has by far been the kind of key location um, that's been the center of this legend.
0: Okay, so let's let's just set the scene a little bit of the legend. John Lafitte, we'll get to his New Orleans story and how he came to fame and the time before this, ends up in Galveston, I believe. Yes. And and reconstitutes sort of his (laughs) – what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Reconstitutes his smuggling operation there?
1: Yeah. um, So he's forced to leave New Orleans because his men had attacked an American ship. They had been given pardon after the war. Um, But the U.S. Navy said that's enough. So they found another location, which had previously been um, used by some other sailors. However, basically, they were all gone, which is the perfect opportunity for a pirate king to take control of this island. And in Texas, his business was primarily probably in the slave trade. Actually, not a lot of people know that about Jean Lafitte, just because you only hear the treasure legends about him. But he was primarily involved in the smuggling of slaves into early Texas, into early Louisiana. And uh, for about four years, give or take, um, he was involved in a number of illegal, uh, illegal, what's the word? I guess just activities on the island.
0: And so from there, how do we get to a deposit of treasure in uh, Texas in East Texas because where you're talking Tatum is not Galveston that's kind of up not far from the Louisiana border right
1: yeah it's 206 miles from the Texas coast and so not many other pirate legends
0: that's just, that's where I'm going <laughs>
1: 200 miles away from uh, from the ocean so that that's what makes this interesting it's so unbelievable on the surface um, that you can't help but wonder, you know, why have people believed this in the past? Why is this continuing as a story if it's if it's so strange? And then you, you look into the history of it and things that have been found in the past that have continued belief and, you know, certain trails that connected and the kind of plausibility of the story it makes you wonder what if I'm, I'm a big guy who loves what if questions you know i i am not a huge fan of uh you know having a, a black or white yes or no all the time i love to think about uh like i just said what ifs and so that's what attracted me to this story and it's one that i heard that i was when i was very young and just by you know this domino effect i ended up getting back into it uh, about 15 years later and somehow became the the main character in that entire story in the last few years <laughs> yes <laughs> uh, it's it's been a crazy experience
0: okay so i want to get to you in just a second but he the, the there's a something about a wagon that could be at the bottom i mean tell us about the part not only the part that you looked at um, that we looked at here, but the greater sort of search, what story it is that, I mean, obviously there's a lot of what ifs, as you're saying, and I think there's more, t- I guess the the great question to start with is there's more to this story than we saw on that show, I would imagine, and there's more to what you're doing than what we saw on that show, correct?
1: Absolutely. Um, but you know, one TV secret that I've heard, I, you know, I heard this from Gary Drayton, actually, but for about every Hour of filming, you get maybe a, a minute or two minutes that ends up on TV, and so the rest of that backstory or you know finds it's just uh, just kind of lost. There's an hour of space that you get in an episode, and a lot of that was um, very watered down just to uh, make it presentable to a wide audience. But there is a, a big backstory. Um, specifically, the the story centers around these. Tellings of six wagon loads of silver that were cut and pushed into this lake, and they had sunk to the bottom, never to be recovered. You know, there are a lot of stories sharing similar ideas. However, Hendrix Lake is one of the few where there were actual, you know, very highly respected treasure hunters um, looking for this in the, in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, including... Um, You know, some big names, some some people that had found other uh, very intriguing archaeological finds, some very well-funded searches. It's one of the few that has that credibility to it. There were various wagon pieces found in the past that make you wonder, you know, is the story true? If it's not true, then were these the wagons that possibly inspired the story? And uh, what was their purpose? So it's it's a big, you know, convoluted backstory that does not get shown on uh, on television. Yeah,
0: you know, as you're talking about this, as you're describing it, the the thing that's so surprising is how much this is sounding like Oak Island, and that and that wasn't really portrayed in that show. You know, I mean, you're talking about little things found here and there, uh, well-funded efforts. Uh, I mean, there aren't a lot of treasure, you know a lot of treasure hunting is we think there's a ship here that has money. We go down, either there's money or there's not. And that's the end of it. But you're, this legend seems to travel trail that to have that same sort of characteristic that Oak Island has that I always thought made Oak Island unique, which was this layer and layer years and years of different attempts, different theories, different ideas being brought in different places to look, you know, all that kind of stuff. Does that make sense?
1: yeah and that's exactly what a lot of the the producers and especially what maddie blake said was how much this place reminded him of the swamp right and uh the the glorious history we don't have uh, all the years that oak island has but there certainly is a a long history of of searches and and caretakers and people that just carried on the story um one point that i've made in the past that this this Jean Lafitte story and and the Hendrix Lake story in particular reminded me of Oak Island because it, it's it's the opposite of a bunch of other legends where you have a map and it's telling you to go to this location or the story tells you to go to this spot. Um, it, it it kind of started the the opposite. You know, stuff is found in the past, and you need a way to explain that. And so it's not a theory leading people to Oak Island; it's Oak Island leading people to theories. And it was that same way at at uh, at Hendricks Lake. And so it's it's a unique way to kind of study history in reverse. You know, I remember times diving where every five minutes I would come up, and it, it's like uh, every time I would come up the object we would bring up would be 10 years older. And so we would go back decades, you know, 1920s, we trace this bottle back to the 1920s. And then, you know, this one might be from 1900 and we, we just keep going back. Uh, but it's it's the ideal opportunity for those to watch and see how a story can form based on, you know, a location.
0: It sounds like this would make a great TV show. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to have all the elements that we all like. <laughs> there's, there's an incredible, compelling history here. I guess the question I have is, what got you, what gets you, In a dive suit at the bottom of a alligator, what I'm sure is an alligator infested lake somewhere in East Texas. What motivates you? For instance, uh, a lot of times, you know, Rick will talk about the stories that he read about. Or people will say, other treasure hunters in the past will say, well, I've read about this guy found this. Um, or, uh, you know, they're convinced something happened here, they just don't know what, so they keep going. What's your motivation to keep going down to the bottom of an alligator-infested lake?
1: Well, the, the way the story began was I was told the story at seven years old. And at seven years old, you have a wandering mind, and so we all kind of dream of accomplishing a certain thing. And when I was that age, you know, I always thought about this lake and the the supposed pirate treasure that I had heard was at the bottom of it. And so I was the the son of two divers. And, you know, I always just imagined myself being the one that finds, you know, the missing piece that, that solves this entire mystery. And somehow that opportunity came up. And so I don't know if there's anyone it's been luckier than I have the last year or two being able to accomplish what I dreamed about at at seven years old. I don't know if many people can say that. Um, so that's one. And a second reason why I've been so willing to really explore, um, and, and literally get to the bottom of this lake was, uh, hearing the stories of, of the people that did it in the past. You know, I was able to have so many conversations with family members and past divers that talked about, honestly, more often than not, how evil it felt at the lake or, or the, the black water conditions, um, you know, the, the nasty creatures, uh, everything's out there to, to harm you. Um, stories like that, but the excitement that they felt at the same time. And so I, I remember my first dive, um, in about 15 feet of water, slowly descending and on the descent the water turns from about neon green to black when you get about six feet down and then beneath that it it just gets darker and darker and it was so dark that uh, I couldn't remember or I I couldn't tell based on how I was positioned if my face mask was in mud and that's why it was so dark or if I was on my knees and, and the water around me it there's a feeling of nothingness down there um and there are periods of, of several minutes where your mind will just kind of go blank and uh it's it's surreal and then I, i'll just you know snap to it and remember uh, uh where i am and and it's it is surreal thinking that, you know, I'm in the exact same place that, that this treasure hunter was in 1957. I'm doing the exact same thing. I don't know how I got here. It, it's such a cool feeling. Um, and then you just you start digging. And that's that's really what it what it was in, in the show. What, it, wow. what it's been for years. <laughs> but it's it's such a cool feeling You're following footsteps. A lot of times of people that may not have gotten credit for Um, the advancements they made to a story in the past but it's you know those two reasons are why i'm so uh happy to talk about my stories of being at the bottom of the lake
0: tell me about the logistics you face i mean the laginas also have a very um they have themselves a unique situation because they actually own the property on which um this treasure is being done so they Kind of, Other than some entanglements from the, with the government, which I don't want to uh, I, I pretend I'm an expert on, um, I, I, if you're searching in different places, what, what kind of logistics does, does a treasure hunter or, or even I, – I, I mean, you sound more like an archaeologist to me than a treasure hunter when you talk about this kind of stuff. But um, what kind of logistics do you face? What kind of challenges in that way?
1: Well, for the most part, uh, just pray it is not on federal land. Uh, you know even uh, when you talk with treasure shows they've got they've got a legal team they know what they're doing they've gotten access to everything before but they'll always tell you you know please tell me this is not on federal property (laughs) because even if you do get permission that is months if not a year or more of just uh, you know government delay so many permits uh, you know having to go all the way up the chain Right. Um, so you really want to look into stories that may be involving private property, and there are a number of those. There's, there's a number of things that are outside of what um, what you generally think of in treasure stories that, that could still be beneficial to look for. There's a number of you know trails that go through every state. There is you know old, old settlements, everything like that that you could search for. Um, but in our case, we just lucked out um, shooting a documentary, and we had all these connections to landowners in the area. And so when this slight possibility came up, you know, it was, it was very simple in getting access to the lake. We have a wonderful relationship with the owner of the only access point into the lake by boat. Um, you know, I've essentially become... Almost a grandkid of his at this point, just saying, you know, I'm <laughs> going over to the lake today. You know, hopefully we'll make you rich one of these days. But uh, it's, it's one of those situations where you always want to be careful. You almost hope you don't find something because, in that case, there is an entire legal dispute. Oh my God. Um, submerged treasure hunting is oftentimes more difficult confusing Uh, in the state of texas i believe it's seven nautical miles from the coast (laughs) that the state will claim they know there's there's a ton of shipwrecks out there and they know people like calvin wilcher that i worked with could find it you know a couple months of searching he might be able to find one of the hundreds of of spanish shipwrecks that have uh happened off the coast of texas however you know they always say you know our, our state archaeologists will get around to it uh, so, you know, there's there's no searches like that being done. Uh, I believe they'll also try to claim everything in a Texas public waterway. It's just this big convoluted mess. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I wish it was it was finders keepers a lot of the time. I've got a, a funny story um, from my uncle. He was he was in the military station in Panama, and he loved to dive on his off days. And he got a group of uh, U.S. soldiers together, and they went diving in the mouth of the Rio Chagres in, in Panama, and they were in about 30 feet of water. And they come across this cannon out of nowhere, and they've got like six guys down there, and they grab it. And the, the way that he described to me at the time was that Panamanian archaeological law did not exist at the time it was like the wild west and so I, this was you know back in the 80s and uh they grab it and they try to get it up and then a wave knocks the cannon down and they say you know we're not going through that effort to bring it back up anyway 20 30 years later archaeology archaeologists find a ship in that exact location called Nuestra Señora de Encarnación which was a very valuable ship i believe it sank in 1683 um, but he had at one time had his hands on one of the cannons and they had found that location. Um, but you know, stuff like that would not happen in the United States. A lot of times there are landowners or government entities, even the original countries, uh, that would try to pry any sort of fine from you. So it's not exactly a, uh, a smart business to be in if you expect <laughs> to keep a lot of fine, but it's it's uh, the money's in TV, really. The, the money's in telling stories, not exactly in what you find.
0: And, and so let's let's talk about that when it comes to Beyond Oak Island. Um, tell us how you got involved with uh, the Oak Island team and how that all came to be.
1: I guess it started in high school, you know, sitting on on. The couch after school and just watching reruns of of oak island and getting uh a love for treasure hunting i know that was 10 years or so ago i never would have expected that i would end up on that show that's weird how that works (laughs) uh man so i had started making a documentary in early 2019 of this story and it really came from wanting to pursue the original tales of of these families that searched there were there were a few families that had searched in the 1950s and 1960s and some of them had had their entire lives you know the trajectory changed how much would your life change if your father chose to move your family you know to a different state to search for treasure for a year um that was really what i i had drawn an interest to i was not exactly concerned at the time was with uh is it real? Is it not? I was I was trying to find the original stories to this Hendrix Lake mystery. And that kind of snowballed into this this wider ranging documentary. And we had done all this research on it. We had gotten all these connections. And so no clue how this happened, but at some point I'm contacted by a producer that was working on the show. And uh, they were very vague at first. Somebody and came
0: to you, approached you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: Was not exactly expecting it. Um, I get like a two-sentence email and says, hey, are you interested in being in a spinoff of The Curse of Oak Island? In my mind, I thought, you know, cool, another treasure show. I might be in 10 seconds of it giving it a single line. That, that was the coolest thing in the world to me.
0: <laughs>
1: so That was February 2020. And then I get a few more emails and they say, you know, we're really interested in having you Skype with Rick and Marty Lagina. And I'm still thinking, you know, I'll be in 10 seconds of the show. This is so cool. I'll get to, you know, give one fact about Jean Lafitte or, or piracy, something right. of that nature. Through this documentary, I somehow you know kind of branded myself as being a quote-unquote expert in 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 piracy or or Jean Lafitte and uh you know I was like "I'll, I'll gladly give give you whatever quote you need and uh then the pandemic shut everything down that that you know middle of March week and I was not sure this show would ever happen was not sure of a title was not sure of what direction it was going and then in june when california filming restrictions were lifted i believe the day that they were lifted i get a phone call and it was like a wednesday or a thursday and they say hey we need to get on a flight on saturday and we need you to test negative and so you know i said okay they said we're, we're, <laughs> we're flying <laughs> the 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 uh to, to film with, uh, Rick and, Rick and Marty Lagina. And I said, yeah, yeah, I know who that is, of course. And, uh, that's, that's how that started. And then they said, you know, we'll, we'll come down to Texas and, and we'll look for this. At the time, you know, we had never thought about doing any sort of search. And so that really forwarded, you know, the search, there have not been any searches for this in 50 years. It has not really been talked about for 50 years until we drugged everything back up and uh the original plan was to have the gpr team from oak island come down there were some logistical issues with quarantining and and having them get back in time to start the first season and so they couldn't and uh, they said do you have anyone that you you know that that could search and i said of course i know someone and that was calvin wiltshire who was actually who told me the story when i was seven years old so everything (laughs) kind of came full circle there And uh, he got to search. Uh, Part of part of the documentary follows his story a little bit to where at the time that he told me the story, he was planning on searching and he had bought access to the lake. And uh, he never got to his his searching partner had passed away. And so that kind of sat in the back of his mind for for 20 years until we did this. And so everything with the story has this beautiful ending for everyone that didn't really get uh, promoted on TV. So that's how I got involved with that. Um, it was kind of uh, another surreal moment. I, it never came to my mind that I was going to be in this TV show until I was right there seated in front of Rick and Marty and, and Maddie. And uh, we shared a lot of great conversations. I loved how authentic they were. I know people love to hear that. Yeah. Um, you know, I the, the way I like to describe them is the oldest kids on TV, really, with <laughs> with what they get to do um we shared a lot of great conversation they are very authentic with with how they present themselves both on and off screen um maddie as well the the funny thing with maddie was that uh you know both he and i we were never talking about the treasure when we were filming as as soon as cameras were off we would go back to uh, uh you know our our big thing was was paranormal stories, and so we would always talk about that in between cuts.
0: Oh, he loves that stuff. Yeah,
1: and, uh, I bonded really well with Maddie. It was such a good experience. Um, hope they find something, you know. Uh, and I hope they have enough to share. So uh, <laughs> it, it, it was such a cool experience being able to do that. Um, that was my first television experience, and so it's kind of starting from the top. You yeah. Know, for- you know, I, I might be in this for ten seconds. And I've never been on television before, and then it was—you know—no, you're the star of the show. <laughs> a pilot, uh, the yes. spinoff of the next one show on TV. So it was—it was kind of starting at the top, exposure by fire, I guess. But it was—it was such a good experience, and it's and all crazy. easy
0: now, man. It's all easy from this point.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was also filmed during the pandemic, and so people. Right. Well, ask me a lot of questions about, uh, you know, was that difficult? The, the crews handled it exceptionally well. You know, I, Hollywood crews deserve so much credit for, for how they can uh, kind of adjust themselves to different situations. Right. The, the Beyond crew was extremely thinned out. I think they had started with, a, you know, 10 producers or something like that. And then they had whittled down to two or three when we were filming. And uh, somehow they accomplished this show. Um, it, was, it was pretty good for what it was. I, I thought I didn't get I thought to it was great. Yeah. see all of it, but it was so cool. If, if I got the opportunity to inspire someone else to, to pursue a story or just in, inspire someone else to um, follow their own hometown legends a little bit closer, then that's, that's such a cool opportunity for me.
0: So, so I assume the work has continued... And and uh, and tell us about the documentary. More about your your work. What you're doing there.
1: Uh, the underwater archaeological work has continued. It has stopped. We are uh, we are done. Um, there most likely will not be any dives in the future. Um, I assume you're not going to tell me why. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'll leave that a little bit of a mystery. We have, have (laughs) uh, you know, I, people always ask me, you know, they, they say, you know, you found a piece of wood in the episode. Have you found anything since? And I'll say, yeah, we, we found a lot more wood since. Um, but yeah, maybe for, for our own safety and whatever, but we, we have stopped diving, um, moved on to other things. Um, So the documentary is what started this all, and it was just a a small sliver of the documentary that really gets pushed on television, and that's the legend and this yes, white or yes, this black, white, yes, no question of is it real? If it's not real, then let's leave it open-ended and maybe go back to it, maybe not. That's kind of how TV works. But the documentary essentially follows the origins of this story and it's it's kind of a investigation into how does a story like this stick around for so long how does it change um what kind of people look into it both now and in the past um, it dives into the paranormal aspects of of storytelling and, and treasure a little bit um, dives a little bit into the the backstory of of the feet and the smuggler associated with the story, Nicholas Trammell. We got really lucky in the first days of the documentary in meeting an author. And he's an independent researcher named Gary Pinkerton, who was also in the episode. But we reached out to him and we said, you know, we, we really hope that you've heard this legend before because you've written a book on the smuggling trail. You know, even if you're the world's biggest skeptic, but we want an interview with you. And he gets back to us in a a couple minutes in this email. And he says, you know, this is the strangest thing. I'm writing a book about this right now. And so we were essentially, (laughs) you know, doing the same project through through these different avenues. And through him, we've been able to meet so many people uh, to fill in the rest of the story. But the Hendrick's Lake story will come to a conclusion. Um, You will get to see exactly what happened there. Um, and it's, it's, it's been a passion project, so I've, I've definitely taken my time with it, but I'm promising that it's, it's going to be very cool and intriguing for anyone that enjoys storytelling, whether you like treasure legends or not, whether you like the paranormal or not, it's, it's a bit wider than that, where you get to see, um, you know, how does this affect people's lives? That that was much more of what I was interested in than, you know, an hour of showing some, you know, intense music and and diving at the bottom of this lake. Uh, So, so that's essentially what it is. It's called Sunken Silver. And that was a name that we were pretty proud of when we came up with it. Uh, It's uh, probably going to be about an hour, maybe a little bit more. Uh, But it's, it's really just an independent documentary that follows both the history of the story, the Activity that has happened there and where it is now and what's what's the future of the legend. And so it, it kind of um, encompasses everything. And uh, I'm really excited to to finish it up and get it out there.
0: Uh, and th- and that is still in production. So you'll let you'll let me know when this is out and available for people to uh, to view, however it is, and I'll I'll post that for you listeners so that you guys can can follow this and hear the end of this story. The way he's saying this is certainly making me <laughs> want to watch this because he's 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 putting a little, some carrots out there for us for sure. Um, let me ask you this question before I geek out on Lafitte for a second. Um, do you ever get discouraged doing the treasure hunting? I mean. I, When you're looking at this kind of thing, you're trying to tell a story that maybe there isn't a history, there isn't really a written history to, um, that maybe in some way, shape or form, you're looking at a, a, a history that may not be completely accepted into things. We don't know where this stuff went. We don't know what it's all about. We don't really know some of these things. Does anything ever get you to think, why am I doing this, man? I mean... I would imagine if you get bit by an alligator, that might do it. But uh, does anything make you stop? I I guess what I'm asking is the mind that trying to think into the the mind of a person who is starts with this idea at seven years old and then gets to do it. Is there ever a point where you think to yourself, maybe I was wrong here. Maybe this wasn't right. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, there's never been a point where I've gotten discouraged because, as I've gotten older, I myself have even, you know, gone back and forth on whether I thought there was any historical backing to the story. Um, and if there's not, then you can always find, you know, some sliver of evidence that can show you maybe how a legend started. Um, I'm really interested in in the anthropology behind storytelling so even if it is disproving something you know I'm very interested in that I'm not one of those people that you know I, I have to find everything and and this has to be real I'm always open to to everything being 100% real or 100% false I am very interested in closure either way and so I've, I've never gotten discouraged with with hunting anything um, I think treasure hunters a lot of time and and especially those much more involved in it than I have. I just got involved in it through uh, through filmmaking. Really, I'm I'm very new to it. But you kind of have to roll with the uh, with with the punches, really. And uh, you know, understand that, that you're called treasure hunters, not always treasure finders. So uh, <laughs> a lot of you know swings and misses and and long days of of finding nothing and, and questioning why you're even there. Uh, but but that is a good question i've I've never really gotten discouraged because I've never been the person to be upset when something ends up being an opposite uh from what I expected so whether whether I think it's real or not i'm i'm just so ecstatic to put myself in the shoes of people before me and and just adventure really
0: you know i i i can't tell you how many times in the course of this conversation when listening to you talk and it, it, it sounds like, you sound like Rick Lagina. You sound like somebody in Oak Island. I mean, there's just from this way you're telling the story of what this is all about and, and the way you're th- approaching these things and stuff. And you also said in there that you've been watching the show for a long time. So I, I, I'm curious what you think of Oak Island. What, what do you, what do you think of all this? What do you think of, of the legend of Oak Island? Sorry mm. to throw that one at you without without giving you a little uh yeah. <laughs> just when you, when you mentioned that I thought, well, let's see what a treasure hunter thinks of all this.
1: I love it. I'm an I'm an evidence-based person and so I tend to agree most where most evidence is aggregated. So in my mind, um I've always thought that to be involvement with religious artifacts, specifically on Oak Island. Um that that's always been the theory that is uh, stuck out the most to me. I, in my university days, you know, did a lot of studying on, on the Templar and it, it, that that's the kind of theory that made the most sense to me with, with what's been built um, and what's been discovered. I, you know, I, I was asked this question on, on a previous show and it was about pirates and whether there was this truth to this idea that pirates buried anything and i said you know the majority of time people don't bury anything uh the real treasure is found in transport and so when 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 shipwrecks happen when wagon loads go missing that's where you find the treasure it's it's never a guy has so much he has to you know pirates they spent it Uh uh-huh right Uh, or they, they never had it, or their wealth was in other things, such as slaves, goods, um, whatever at the time was was valuable. That's that's where they went. But Oak Island seems different. It, it seems like there's—I um, I don't know anyone that can debate that there's some sort of uh, event that took place there that we don't know about. There, there are structures that they find all the time that— you know, we have no explanation for So it's that idea of the location breeds theories. And the one that made the most sense to me was the idea of of the Templars making it to North America with something that they needed to conceal, um, whether that be religious artifacts, um, goods, maps, whatever that may have been. That's what makes the most sense to me. Uh, However, I have read several debunking theories and, uh, you know, even hoax theories or majority hoax theories um, that, you know, made a lot of sense. And so I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm very much open to that, too. I, I do not put all of my uh, kind of backing mm-hmm. into into one category. But Templar wealth is what Templar wealth and religious artifacts is what would make the most sense to me. And I hope they find it. You know, I'm really hoping they do. You think, but so, but you think they're onto something? Yes. You, yeah. And okay. and even if it, even if it was, you know, the last season they talk about a ship being built, and so there are questions of, you know, was all this just structures to support this this ship being built or, or torn apart, whatever it was? You know, that's still missing history that they're putting out there. Um. So whatever it may be, also in, in the case of Hendrix Lake, you know, if we discover that it's a different story. That gave rise to this legend, you know. That's still closure, and and people can move on from this. So, if it is something a lot less um, exciting than than Templar uh, treasure, then so be it. They they're still the ones that that solve the mystery, and I think there's a a lot of fame and excitement that can come in in simply solving a mystery. Oh, amen.
0: Absolutely true. I think that's absolutely the case. Now, listen, Oak Island listeners, uh, you, you can stop listening now because Dave's about to geek out on a subject he absolutely loves. And that's John Lafitte, uh, who is the whole reason why we're talking about this, kind of having this conversation. Um, tell me about this man who, by the way, has a national park named after him in Louisiana. Um but he may not be, um, you know, when you think of figures who get national parks, uh, the type of person that tends to be a military leader, uh, uh, maybe even a, a philosopher or, a, or a, a, an author or something. Jean Lafitte's a very different man from all that,
1: right? <laughs> yeah, there's nothing about his life that has an exact answer or that's agreed uh, by historians. Um even his his fame from the war. And so that, that comes about with uh, the story of the the British attacking New Orleans, or they, they were positioned to attack New Orleans. And Andrew Jackson needed naval help. And so both the British and the Americans were trying to hire a pirate, basically, to lead their, their <laughs> navy and, and save the city or... Uh, Capture the city if, if, if it was from the position of the British and so it shows where the allegiances were with right. pirates specifically Lafitte you know it was who offers me the most money or who do I hate the least that day uh, th- that's which side I'm going to take
0: and it also shows how quickly governments go from this is the worst criminal in the history of the world to this is a guy we're going to pay to help us do this which happened oh so many times throughout the history of piracy <laughs> mm-hmm
1: Anyway, so, continue. You're not able to make the argument that governments were against the ethics of piracy uh, because a lot of them would hire pirateers and say, you can do whatever you're doing, just do it against our enemies. We do not care. Um, and and that's what was, was popular at the time. But at the time of Lafitte, piracy had essentially died out. I would consider him the last... Of the pirates, certainly if you do the last consider- of
0: the famous pirates, right? I mean, the golden yeah. age of piracy had ended by the time the War of eighteen twelve was there for sure.
1: Exactly, and and he comes at a time where the U.S. was becoming a you know becoming a superpower in this part of the world. Um, there was a lot of there was a lot of military activity in Texas and Mexico at the time. And no one was concerned with the coast. And so he found this little strip of land called Galveston Island. It was not called that at the time, but that's where it is now. Um, and he, after being forced from New Orleans, which is the story of that is is that his men attacked an American ship. Navy said leave. At the time, Texas was not a member of the United States. It was Spanish territory. And he uh, he finds a little strip of land there. And he so essentially reclaims his uh his pirate base. And uh that's where the stories come from in Texas. Was was these 4 years of activity in Texas. And so one cool thing about the the show that I was involved in was that we were able to share a Lafitte story from Texas. So often in television you hear Lafitte stories associated with Louisiana. Right. However, half of his pirating career was which was actually quite long for a for a pirate. And most pirates were uh, one to two years before they were missing, hanged, you name it. Um, but he was very successful for, for quite a few years.
0: And we don't know where he died or where he was born or what happened to him, correct? He sort of uh,
1: slips out of
0: out of history after some of this.
1: That depends on who you ask, yes. And <laughs> where he died is actually the subject of a a um, show that I've been trying to pitch, uh, f- a show that would essentially follow the last years of both the brothers, Jean and Pierre Lafitte, um, investigating what stories are true based on where they went, what they did. Uh, they certainly continued in illicit activities after leaving. Uh, they, Jean basically burned the island of Galveston, left, and uh, there are not many records of him from there on. Uh, TV shows like to build this up as you know they've vanished and are, are no longer seen in history. That's not exactly true. There are death records of them. Um, however, with both of them, there are multiple death records, and so that's what excited me about the show was was going. You know, is there possible? Uh, you know, one of the the ideas that I looked into was an episode idea involving DNA testing in Mexico that could prove that not only did one of the brothers make it there, but there could have been a woman there as well who had the son of one of the brothers. Um, And DNA testing could possibly prove that. Uh, There, there's so many stories there's uh, just as last year, there were a, there was a group from, I believe, North Carolina that claimed to find a sword with the letters J Lafitte carved into the side of it. And, their local legend was that this old Frenchman moved to town, and they think it may have been Jean Lafitte. Uh, there's also the Journal of Jean Lafitte, which is supposedly self-written by the, the pirate and claims that he lived out the rest of his years, unassumingly, in the United States. I don't particularly believe that a pirate king would do so, <laughs> but uh, you know, there are so many legends it's this idea that you see the same with outlaws you see the same yes. with Billy the King. yep and you know we just don't want them to die and so we want to continue the stories we want to and he you know, and he, it, he, he was essentially an outlaw on the run correct that's exactly it there's so many comparisons that can be made with with pirates and outlaws but i think as a people we love the stories of adventure even if there is you know Unethical behavior involved. We we love freedom and and adventure, and they become almost heroes because they don't live the everyday life. And by not living the everyday life, they immortalize their own names. And so I think we we help that in in you know creating all these new legends about them. Um, Now that's not saying some of these might not be true of them ending up in missing places. That certainly happened throughout history. But as a people, we, we do love to continue the stories of those that we admired, or we, we at least admired these stories that came from their lives. Whether those stories actually happened in their lives or not is another question. Uh, Lafitte is one of those people that certainly had uh, legends attached to him that he had nothing to do with. And that, that says a lot about him as a historical character um you know you are literally legendary as a as a character when you have stories attached to you that that you have nothing to do with and that was kind of who he was uh, you know Colombia Cuba Mexico uh, Haiti they 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 all have death records including you know 20 something cities in the US claim to be the death site at least unofficially of of the uh of the pirate i will tell you that the official mexican record of of him dying in mexico is not correct um, you know well there's
0: but, there's 20 cities and multiple countries that claim to have death records of jean lafitte
1: if not a physical written record then it is kept up in the lore of, of some time that's amazing
0: that's amazing
1: or used to sell books even even uh, you know less than 15 to 20 years after Lafitte basically stopped piracy and and vanished from the island I don't think he he would have lived more than a a few years after he left but even 15 to 20 years after there were books coming out claiming that he was still involved in in capturing all these ships there's a record of him uh, attacking a Spanish ship and killing the entire crew and that made ways in the US Um, most historians will tell you that that never happened but since that came out you know a lot of his evil stories uh were believed because of what what came out that that he never did
0: unbelievable Uh, you know he's again he's such a he's a unique character because this is a man who got national fame as sort of a military hero when before and after he was essentially a criminal on the (laughs) on the run and there's all these like paintings and stuff of him that look so regal because they're obviously were done under the light of of his you know i i guess what we would call service to the country you know mm-hmm. uh, it, it's, it's he really is unique in that regard uh uh you know and the last great swashbuckler really with the with the fun mustache and the great hat and the whole thing i mean there's so much to him um <laughs> I, I really hope you get to do this project that you're talking about doing, because this I had no idea that just the place of his death was such a legendary subject.
1: I, I think there's a lot there to be found historically and, um, you know, to get more people interested. There's always the possibility that one, if not both of them, could have taken some secrets with them, you know, wherever they ended up. there's There's so many language barriers cultural barriers that have kept us from piecing together a lot of the history of piracy that happened in the gulf and caribbean a lot of those are breaking down today however there's still a lot of barriers uh for example i I tried to get spanish records um, from when texas was a uh under mexican rule and uh, was told that you know not a problem However, it's probably going to be a few years because we are only about 1% translated with all of our records. Oh, my God. Years to go through this. Uh, so there's just mysteries sitting sitting on pages. There's
0: oh my uh,
1: God. ships that were insured in London where you can go through records and, and see ships that he may have taken. Uh, another fun fact, if, if you like the story about his, uh, his war fame, then... You would like that uh, in his journal, which he supposedly wrote. I do not believe that, but uh, a lot of people do. Uh, But it's written from the first-person perspective. And he says, he basically admits that he got a lot more credit than he deserved. And he arrived after the the battle was over. And so he got all this credit that he was not. uh, He (laughs) was So it's it's everything with Lafitte. There's there's two sides to the story, you know. Was he really involved in piracy? There's only uh, one specific thing attaching his name specifically to piracy, Um, or the the specific act as it was legally defined at that time. There's only one mention, and you know every every town in Texas really has a, a claim to fame. From Lafitte, you know, whether he he shipped something there or he uh, visited, he, he did some mapping of, of Texas rivers. Everyone's got a story. And it shows what kind of character he was that if he was not involved, then when you are creating your town legend, <laughs> you want him to be involved. <laughs> Well, New
0: Orleans doesn't have to create that legend. I mean, this, his name is everywhere <laughs> in New Orleans. And it's and it's amazing to me how you have a guy, you know, you're talking about time in Texas and stuff. I mean, this is after, like you said, after he had already been sort of a almost a military hero, but then had to get sort of asked politely to leave because... He was not really a military hero. He was a smuggler. He was, you know, he was who he was. And, and uh, you know, and then he ends up doing these things, essentially illegal stuff, while still probably being thought of by most of the country as this great pirate role model or something. It's hard to even put your mind around it. He's so complex. His history is so layered and so complex. It's incredible.
1: It really is. Mm hmm there are some great historians that, um, dig up something new every year. Uh, you know, th- there are multiple defeat societies. I'm very good friends with the, the one in Texas, but, uh, multiple defeat societies that every year they, they find new information about them and it, you know, confirms one thing and, and raises questions on another. No one can agree on anything really. They're just guesses, inferences, and, uh, Hopefully, one day maybe some archaeological finds that confirm some things. But his his life is really unbelievable. It, it, unbelievable is a good word. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Listen, thank you so much for doing this. Is there any place that we could uh, that listeners and stuff can follow what you're doing? Uh, social media? How how what what can they do to to kind of keep up with uh, any of these projects you might come along?
1: Yeah, um, I'm probably most active on instagram on on all social media i'm at christian b roper uh i have a website where occasionally i'll, I'll post updates to new projects christian b roper.com and you can find a lot more information on the film at uh sunken silver.com i like to keep my websites very simple um but if, if you're interested you know there's a lot of information on on a bunch of those sites on on what i'm doing
0: Right, my sincerest thanks to Christian Roper for uh, coming on and talking to us today about Jean Lafitte, about the uh, really interesting treasure hunting work he's doing and the the uh, ideas that he has for a show God, I'd love to see a show about Jean Lafitte. I would love to see a show about Jean Lafitte. <laughs> Prometheus, if you're listening. Sign that man up to do a show about finding the real history of Jean Lafitte. Anyway, and of course, his time on Oak Island and his time, uh, you know, with the Laginas. It was really interesting to hear some of that stuff, and I hope you enjoyed it. Uh I know it's i've been saying i've been getting trying to get to a regular schedule for um podcasts. I promise you that is actually going to happen now that September's come because what I've been doing for the last couple of weeks is actually conducting a few interviews, so we have a few to come and some really interesting ones and one of those interviews is actually going to be part three of the series we did last year on Captain Kidd. So stay tuned for all that. Stay subscribed and uh, make sure you're coming back and uh, seeing us. Okay, that's going to do it for today's episode of Digging Oak Island. Don't forget to subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show, I ask you to rate and review us with a five-star rating, please, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps to get the word out on us, and uh, for reasons I'm, I'm not really sure of, it helps to bring more listeners to the show. Also, thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who's done so already. I really appreciate you taking the time to do that and for the kind words. Don't forget I have another uh, podcast called Sit Downs and Sessions where me and my friend, radio fellow radio host, uh, Chris Poe, talk about anything, paranormal, politics, beer, all sorts of stuff. It's just basically two friends, two lifelong friends sitting down and chatting at a pub. Um, you can find that, again, Sit Downs and ses- Sessions on Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions or comments you'd like to send directly to me, you could do so via email, digginoakisland at gmail.com. Don't forget, if you send me an email or message, I'll probably answer it here on a future podcast. So if you don't want your message read to the listening audience or you need an answer right away, just make a note of that for me and I'll I'll answer you on email. Don't forget, follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. Just find us at Island. Uh, give us a like or a follow there, or whatever you do, and that'd be much appreciated. Uh, always invite you guys to come and see us there. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.